0: Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. In today's episode, we look at the first of the three essays of Nietzsche's book on the genealogy of morality. In this first essay, Nietzsche gives a kind of historical, psychological, etymological, and philosophical account for the origin and development of the contemporary morality of good and evil. And he doesn't think too highly of this morality, to put it mildly. Just be prepared to be a little offended. After giving a summary of this essay, Joel and I discuss some of the ideas just covered and are... Hopefully a little less offensive than Nietzsche. Wondering Toward Wisdom, that's Wondering with an A, is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. And our network has grown. Check out both TF Radio and our newest edition, Tangible Truth, with the Renaissance man, Doug Powell. Visit tacticalfaith.com for blogs, information on events, and so on. Also consider supporting our work in prayer and perhaps financially. Oh, and subscribe like and follow us on twitter at toward wisdom or send an email to wondering at tacticalfaith.com if you have any comments questions or recommendations enjoy so nietzsche is attempting to discover the origin of morality it's genealogy but is not doing so through some kind of pure reason as Kant might do nor through a reflection on the apparent reason that moves history as hegel and his followers would do nor, more importantly, will he simply establish morality as a matter of usefulness, as the utilitarians were doing at his time. Rather, he is going to seek to dig into who we are, not just who we are now, but how we became the kinds of being, beings really that we presently are, and Nietzsche's vivisection of our morality and psychology is merciless. The title of the first essay of the book is Good and Evil, Good and Bad. Nietzsche will describe an attempt to tell the story of how these two different, really almost opposite pairs of values arose. There's the pairing of good and evil and the pairing of good and bad. The former pair, good and evil, is clearer, is uh, really a a more moral pairing. Evil is the action of a wicked will who actively earns condemnation and is deserving of hatred. Of course, If evil is one side of this pairing, then the other side, good, refers to a will that, well, is good and worthy of praise, honor, and, as we will see, also compassion and kindness. Now, the pairing of good and bad has a different set of connotations. Bad does not necessarily mean wicked, though in our colloquial use, bad can include evil, but bad is far more broad and often has little or nothing to do with the will. An apple can go bad, a car can be bad, a dog can be bad, a disease can be bad and it can make the life of the one who has that disease bad. There can be bad weather, bad timing, bad circumstances, and even mistakes to which many of us apologize, saying, my bad. Such valuations say nothing about the will. They simply describe a state or a situation that we find unpleasant. We wouldn't want to be in that situation, to suffer that, eat that, live in that. There's no moral element to such a determination, though. It is just something we find undesirable. To look for the genealogy of morality, we need to figure out where the pairing of good and evil came from. How did that arise? After all, it seems far more reasonable from a natural selection perspective for humans to simply possess the non-moral values of good and bad. Maintaining that attentiveness to himself and to the human psyche that he accused most thinkers of missing, Nietzsche begins with a reflection on the etymology of the word good or the German word "gut." those he calls the English psychologists, that is, utilitarian-style ethicists, had argued that the idea of the good came as a response to something being done for someone. So let us say that Bob helps Susan and gives Susan something that she needs, and he does this without necessarily demanding anything in return, Susan, happy to have received some needed help or some desired object, says to Bob that he has done something good. This happens enough, and suddenly humanity has ingrained in its mind that good is primarily the act of bringing happiness to as many as possible. That is, these utilitarian genealogists of morality believed that the idea of good arose from those to whom goodness was shown. Now, Nietzsche disagrees. He believes that they got it precisely backwards. Nietzsche argues rather that it has been the good themselves, meaning the noble, the mighty, the high-placed, and the high-minded who saw and judged themselves and their actions as good, in contrast to everything lowly, low-minded, common, and plebeian. End quote. Why would Nietzsche be concerned that those who were good called themselves good rather than those who received good things referring to their benefactors as good? Well, there are two primary reasons. First, it seems more reasonable that those who are in a position of power would determine what is considered good and what is not good, while those who have little power would accept what the powerful say. In fact, Nietzsche claims that the etymology of the word good led him in this direction. It seems that the word may have arisen from the the words for warrior. Indeed, even the synonyms that we often use for good, such as noble, suggest such a source. In turn, the German word for bad seems derived from the word for common or plain, the opposite of the noble and the aristocratic. And I think we might find a similar element in English, for the the word vulgar is derived from the the Latin term for just the common person. Secondly, It was indeed those in power who determined what was, if it was indeed, sorry, those who in power who determined what was good and what was bad, that suggests that good was not a term given in reaction to some event happening. And this point is key to the genealogy of morality, as well as to Nietzsche's ideas more generally, that the original set of values, the healthy values, are those of the active, the strong, the noble, the honest but that we are now living under the values of, well, the values of the passive, the weak, the lonely, and the deceitful. And this is something that has happened relatively recently, which involves not merely a change of values, but a a full reversal. Of course, this part of Nietzsche's claim is probably the most controversial. In fact, a number of parts of this claim are controversial. What could could it mean that this other kind of morality was healthy? And what part of the modern morality is unhealthy? And healthy or unhealthy for whom? And what exactly was this er early noble morality like? Violent and barbaric? Wouldn't this mean that the new morality is better? And in historical terms, there are actually two problems. First, if the active and noble were truly powerful, then how did the weak manage to reverse the values? And second, if the weak did reverse the values, then wouldn't we see this apparent revolution of values in some historical event or series of events? Now, Nietzsche gives answers to both of these problems, and in doing so explains a lot of what we talked about just above. But first, let's get some of our terms in hand. What Nietzsche says are the first set of values, that is, good and bad. We'll call this the noble valuation or noble morality, or alternatively, the strong morality of strong values. Though, to be honest, there's very little that we might consider moral about it. It's not really morality. But not for the reasons you might think. The second set of values, though, uh, which somehow defeated the noble valuation and is more strictly what we'll call moral, Uh, We'll call it the priestly morality or the weak morality, or Nietzsche using Nietzsche, we can call it the slave morality or slave values. This priestly or slave or weak morality is the valuation pair good and evil. The reason for using the terms noble and priestly or slave is because that is where Nietzsche believed the two different sets of valuations arose. The noble is good and bad, while the slave or priestly is good and evil. We already have the sense that the priestly is more moralistic and contains an element of compassion and doing things for others. But while this sounds fairly nice on the surface, remember that Nietzsche is not satisfied with the appearance of morality. He wants to find out how such ostensible kindness could arise among animals who existent, whose existence and survival depends on killing, consuming, taking by force, violation, And he does this in part simply by looking deeply within himself and investigating the motives that people have. In doing so, we find a perfectly reasonable explanation and story, a genealogy, we might say, for the development of the contemporary priestly morality. So let's imagine early or ancient history. We have the powerful. These are people who do not use or need deception. They are what we might call men of action. Probably some women of action as well, of course. As well, of course. So they use the power they have to acquire what they desire. But, and this is perhaps one of the most intriguing aspects of Nietzsche's thought, it is not in getting what they desire that they find. It, that's not where they find happiness. It is in action itself that they find joy. Obviously, they enjoy the spoils of battle and the spoils of victory. They even enjoy the violative aspects of life. But they are in a way much like a young child who simply enjoys moving. Exertion, running, contests, simply moving things about. This is the bread and butter of the active person. But really, even this isn't quite right. Nietzsche does not think the active person simply wants mere action. They, in fact, find joy and fulfillment in overcoming a challenge. This love of overcoming is key to understanding Nietzsche. The active love. To face and overcome a challenge. They love it. They are driven by a love of exertion, the exhilaration of danger, and the thrill of the hunt. And it is this mindset that makes them the noble and sets them apart from the passive of the weak. That is, the noble are not necessarily the aristocracy, nor are they necessarily muscular or even violent, though Early on, they probably were. Rather, the active are those who seek and enjoy a challenge. And by Nietzsche's day, because humanity had changed so dramatically, often the most noble and most powerful were people who were artists and philosophers, among other things, even though he includes Napoleon among those, among the strong. We can better recognize the active if we contrast them with the weak, the priestly, or the slave. The weak, upon facing a challenge, recoil in fear, in exhaustion. Challenges make them scared, frustrated, sad. They draw back and they hide, rather than rising up to the challenge. So to review, Nietzsche says that the original set of values is that of good and bad. This set presents the noble valuation, which is the morality of the active, the strong, the noble. It is a mere self-affirmation, a self-affirmation that the strong love their lives and they do not desire to be like those who are weak. On the other hand, we have the priestly or slave valuation, that is good and evil, which is more like what we consider moral now. It involves, as we will see, condemnation, even hatred of the evil. And in demand that those who are different be like them. In everything we've said so far, it seems the strong would have and would continue to hold power in perpetuity. But there is one advantage that the weak have over the strong. The weak live in such a way that they develop cleverness. Indeed, to survive, the weak need to be clever. That is, natural selection would make up for a given weakness with another strength. The weak brood and reflect over the situation. They become tricky, deceitful, clever. The strong, on the other hand, or at least the early strong, were too active to really develop cleverness. They might be strategic, but they weren't clever and deceitful. They don't need it. Or rather, yeah, again, they did not really need it in the past. Things change, though. The cleverness of the weak and the revolution from the noble valuation to the slave valuation, the slave morality has changed us as humans and not really all for the worse. Nietzsche describes the change thus. Priests make everything more dangerous, not just medicaments and healing arts, but pride, revenge, acumen, debauchery, love, lust for power, virtue, sickness. In any case, With some justification, one could add that man first became an interesting animal on the foundation of this essentially dangerous form of human existence, the priest, and that the human soul became deep in the higher sense and turned evil for the first time. And of course, these are the two basic forms of man's superiority hitherto over other animals. Nietzsche hints here at the almost childlike attitude of the strong. They have pride, but it is a light, joyful pride. They take revenge. They are debauched. They have a lust for power and so on. But they partake of these things in an almost playful manner. But the priests take everything more seriously. They take it very seriously. Everything becomes dangerous and deep. A couple of the strong may battle in revenge, And after the battle is over, they'll have a beer together and enjoy one another's company, perhaps. Indeed, one may even die at the hand of the other, but feel honor in having fought and died well, respecting his enemy and taking pride in himself. But the priestly does no such thing. If he battles someone, he will hate him for a long time, perhaps for eternity, and will seek to crush that enemy into humiliation and suffering. If it sounds like I'm talking about hell while you're on the right track. The priest takes everything very seriously, makes everything very deep, complicated, dark, in a word, sinful. And the priestly morality has affected humanity in a powerful way. This dangerous darkness has made us deep. That is, it has made us capable of evil. We do not participate in violence and sex and pride with the lightness of an animal. We do these things with the clever and hateful depth of homo sapiens. The strong were in the past more like children, more animal-like. It was the priestly that brought this evolution of evil into the moral DNA of humanity. And in fact, changed humanity. So that the strong now, according to Nietzsche, are not those who run around like Conan the barbarian beating people up, but rather those who can overcome themselves. But that's, we'll have to cover that a little bit later, maybe. Now, who are these priests? And how are they related to the slave? Well, there seems to have been priests for all of recorded human history. The priests were aristocracy, just like the noble. But they were the weak aristocracy, you might say. They were those incapable or unwilling to fight like a warrior. Nietzsche holds that they probably originally were quite literally weak. Maybe they had bad digestion. Maybe they were Ill, made ill easily. Thus, purification rites were in fact attempts by the priests to remain as healthy as possible. They were literally purification rites. They could not handle dirty drink, dirty food, dirty women, or dirty environs in the literal sense of dirty or diseased. So they became obsessed with cleanliness. And perhaps their experience of illness and suffering fed into their attitude toward the dirty. The dirty thing is a hateful monster that they cannot defeat, they cannot overcome, but constantly overcomes them if they're not careful. They can only try to be rid of it. While the Priestly were busy being clean and trying to calm their digestion in the shadowed corners of their temples, the noble warriors were out gaining glory in the bright sun. They brought home riches, stories, honor, and all the other spoils of war. It would not be surprising that the Priestly would become jealous. If I may appeal to a fairly well-known depiction of this very conflict between the Priestly and the Noble, consider Thor and Loki even as they are presented in the contemporary films. Early on, Thor is muscular, active, powerful, almost childish in his pursuit of glory and honor and his enjoyment of it. Loki is weaker, but clever, a magician, and he is jealous and hateful of Thor. Thor doesn't really hate Loki, but is merely confused by him, while Loki hates Thor. Thor's childlikeness is fun and funny. Loki's cleverness is dark and dangerous. Thor is loving but rough. Loki is hateful but smooth. Loki's jealousy echoes the jealousy of the priestly class against the noble, the warrior class. And this jealousy is without recourse. The priests cannot attack the warriors. They cannot meet them in the daytime to battle. The priest becomes frustrated. Their jealousy becomes anger, and unable to act, that anger deepens into poisonous hatred. Nietzsche uses the French word ressentement, that is, resentment, to refer to this hatred of the weak. Again, the hatred of the warrior, the hatred of someone like Thor, is short-lived. It explodes and is spent on the battlefield. The exertion is enough to quench that hatred. But when you cannot act on hatred, that hatred becomes toxic. Nietzsche describes this toxic hatred found among the priests. As we know, priests make the most evil enemies. But why? Because they are the most powerless. Out of this powerlessness, their hate swells into something huge and uncanny, to a most intellectual and poisonous evil. The greatest haters in world history and the most intelligent have always been priests. Nobody else's intellect stands a chance against the intelligence of the priestly revenge. This toxic hatred is the resentment of which Nietzsche speaks. Now, how did this revolution of the priestly morality overcome the noble morality? We already have a hint here. The priests are far cleverer than the noble. But what bit of priestly cleverness turned these values on their heads? Nietzsche writes, the beginning of the slave's revolt of morality occurs when resentment itself turns creative and gives birth to values. The resentment of those beings who denied the proper response of action compensate for it only with imaginary revenge. So the passive's seem, by their very nature, to be unable to create. Creativity requires an active shift, a transformation, the bringing forth of something new. But passivity, that is the passivity of the weak, is only a reaction to the present state of things. It's fearful of change. And so given that resentment is this passive hatred and passivity is not known for creativity, how did the passive create a new set of values? As you might expect, it took place as a reaction, not purely as a true action. Nietzsche explains it like this. Whereas all noble morality grows out of a triumphant saying yes to itself, slave morality says no on principle to everything that is outside other, non-self. And this no is its creative deed. What does Nietzsche mean that slave morality, the valuation of the passive of the weak, is a no to everything that is non-self? Weakness makes one desire stability, clarity, safeness. You don't want anything new or surprising. You want your situation to be perfectly fitted to you. All things that are not exactly as you'd like them are are foreign or dangerous, an enemy. They're not an interesting challenge or an exciting opportunity, or even an honorable enemy, but an irritant that you simply need to get rid of. Now, there's something subtle here. The strong is not one who has aristocratic blood or is able to beat up others. Those are, in fact, passive descriptions, reactive descriptions, descriptions from the weak, perhaps, of that person. The strong one really is at heart simply one who says yes to one's own life. Without concern for what others are doing, what they say, what their judgment is, This does not mean that the strong have an easy life or even a pleasant life. It means that they have an attitude toward life that sees difficulties as challenges rather than unearned punishments and reasons to complain. Perhaps the most obvious example of this kind of attitude is found among many of those who are successful. Consider, for example, how professional athletes speak. The great ones rarely whine about losses or failures, but really see these things as reasons to work harder. They're driven, confident, and even in the hardship, they wouldn't trade their life for one that has less hardship, simply so that they could be comfortable. Now, the weak look at things differently. They're not for themselves, really, but rather against that which causes them discomfort. The weak cannot simply affirm themselves because they experience life as pain and difficulty. They don't like their lives, and so they begin by hating the things that they think cause their lives to be suffering. They hate difficulty, and they hate those who do not seem to be suffering, that is, those who say yes to life. And thus, only directly do they affirm themselves by saying no to everything that is other, by hating that which is different than themselves, by hating the strong, the noble, those who say amen to life, they end up affirming themselves, but only indirectly. They don't affirm their lives because because they're invigorated by their lives but only because they are different than those who, in fact, love life. That is, only by hating the strong do they claim that they themselves are worth anything, because at least they are not like those people. Nietzsche describes it like this. The well-born felt they were happy. They did not need, first of all, to construct their happiness artificially by looking at their enemies, or in some cases, by talking themselves into it, lying themselves into it, as all men of resentment are wont to do. In this same section, he notes that the strong linked happiness to action, while the weak saw happiness as a cessation of action, as peace and quiet, as, he says, a Sabbath. This distinction between the strong and the weak is perhaps the most important concept for really understanding the rest of the book. Much of the rest follows simply from what we've said. Now, remember, Nietzsche claims to be writing a genealogy morality that is truer to history and psychologically deeper and better aligned with contemporary science than the other genealogies. If you are having a hard time believing him, well, it could be because you see a fatal flaw in his claims. Alternatively, it could be because you are like those he describes in the preface. You're not really paying close enough attention to yourself. But let's see how this works out in the rest of the first essay. And given that we spent a lot of time setting out these fundamentals, here we'll try to move a little more quickly. According to Nietzsche, the first set of values was good and bad. There was no moral judgment involved in these values. They were merely an affirmation of what one liked. That is, the noble declared themselves happy. And bad was merely a judgment of what you perceived as an unhappy life. The noble looked at the weak and thought, I wouldn't want to be like that. That's an unhappy existence. That is bad. Again, this is not a moral condemnation, simply a judgment much like, I think green olives taste bad, and by that I do not mean that they are evil, but that they do not suit my taste. But there was a revolution in values. The weak overcame the strong, and the weak values are moral values in in the stricter sense. The particular flavor of moral judgment arises from the resentment that the weak feel due to their inability to act on their jealousy and hatred. The weak do not judge the noble life as an undesirable life. In fact, it's quite the contrary. They at least want what the strong get from their actions, the honor, the spoils of victory, and so on. But because they can't have these things, but rather are often oppressed in one way or another by the strong, the weak hate them with a the powerless hatred of resentment. Resentment, when it can speak about another person, judges that person to be not bad as an undesirable, but evil as in that which everyone should hate. And so what is the flavor of moral values? Resentment, that hatred of the weak, not the active hatred of the strong. And so what the strong calls good, the weak call evil. And what the strong calls bad, the weak call good. The weak reversed the values and then added the flavor of resentment to make bad into evil. But again, I still haven't answered the question, how did the weak win? How did they win against the strong and establish their resentful morality as the dominant morality in Europe in particular? Nietzsche here gets more directly historical and sounds, well, a bit anti-Semitic, though his real distaste is for Christianity, not for Judaism. In fact, he has some respect for what he sees as the God of the Old Testament, but that's uh, another topic. Consider, which nation, in fact, referred to itself as a nation of priests? Well, Israel, and if you consider that Israel and its own religion, of course, loomed large, is central and important to the world. Which, by the way, if you read the Bible, Israel's pretty much central to the entire Old Testament and much of the New. But if you look at world history, Israel barely barely shows up. Israel looks very much like the weak, the priestly, the slave. It has an inflated sense of self-importance, as we all do, at least an inflated self sense of self-importance compared to the history of the world. And it is in an almost constant state of having to serve other nations who embodied values more akin to the values of the strong, the noble. Meanwhile, of course, Judaism was understood as a very moral religion. It's not about sacrifices to pay off or trade with a god of war or about gaining power or any other such thing, really. Really, it's more about mercy, compassion, and so on. Nevertheless, even though Israel was beleaguered small and weak through most of its history, barring a few years, we can say that Europe and the West is built upon Judeo-Christian values, even if those religions have been rejected by many. Now, how did this happen? Nietzsche offers us the image of a contest, a contest between Rome and Jerusalem. The Romans, he writes, were the strong and noble, stronger and nobler than anybody hitherto who had lived or been dreamt of on earth. Their every relic and inscription brings delight, provided one can guess what it is that is doing the writing there. By contrast, the Jews were a priestly nation of ressentiment par excellence, possessing an unparalleled genius for popular morality. And so, Nietzsche writes that Rome is the embodiment of the noble values, and Jerusalem the embodiment of the priestly values. Rome had conquered Jerusalem militarily, but in the end, Jerusalem, in fact, conquered Rome with its values. But how? Well, you probably guessed it, through Jesus, who served as a kind of bait to Rome. The Jews produced a man who embodied the values of Jerusalem, but seemed almost anti-Jewish. And Rome bought it. They swallowed the bait. The account of which we can find, of course, in the New Testament, in the early church history, and which is carried out in large part by Paul. This is what brings us to the modern era of ethics, in which values like courage, the stoic strength, victory, and honor are are considered really less and less valuable, even evil. On the other hand, values such as compassion— Pity, equality, and equity have risen to the top of the moral hierarchy. In fact, the democratic ideal that is held today, that is, that the people should have a say in how government is run, is, Nietzsche believes, a result of the Judeo-Christian morality. Or, to put it in more familiar terms, in how we've been speaking, weak morality. That is, after all, it says that no one should be held above another. There should be no hierarchy. It's the popular morality, the morality of the populace. Only a few, after all, are truly strong, according to Nietzsche. So what is Nietzsche's problem with what he calls the morality of the weak? Because he seems to be attacking it pretty pretty heartily. Does Nietzsche think that the priestly set of values is evil? Well, no. That would be a problem if he did. Rather, he believes the priestly morality is bad. It smells bad, in his language. It reeks of decay, weakness, and disgrace. He writes thus What constitutes our aversion to man today? For we suffer from man, no doubt about that. Not fear, rather the fact that we have nothing to fear from man, that man is first and foremost a teeming mass of worms, that the tame man, who is incurably mediocre and unedifying, has already learned to view himself as the aim and pinnacle, the meaning of history, the higher man. A little bit later, Nietzsche writes of his own hope and a warning, and I quote at length here, But from time to time, grant me a glimpse. Grant me just one glimpse of something perfect, completely finished, happy, powerful, triumphant, that still leaves something to fear. A glimpse of a man who justifies man himself a stroke of luck, an instance of a man who makes up for and redeems man and enables us to retain our faith in mankind. For the matter stands like so. The stunting and leveling of European man conceals our greatest danger because the sight of this makes us tired. Today we see nothing that wants to expand. We suspect that things will just continue to decline, getting thinner, better-natured, cleverer, more comfortable, more mediocre, more indifferent, more Christian. Right here is where the destiny of Europe lies. And losing our fear of man, we have also lost our love for him, our respect for him, our hope in him, and even our will to be man. The sight of man now makes us tired. What is nihilism today if it is not that? We are tired of man. Now, here Nietzsche taps into something that still exists today. We love seeing, things, seeing people do things with excellence, with exuberance and strength. But this joy in seeing such things is tempered, heavily tempered, by a strong morality that is grounded in something like compassion, equality, and really, as a result, vengefulness. Now, why vengefulness? Well, because weak morality is a reaction This may be why we do not want to see or read about simple conquerors in our stories. We want to see people who defend the weak and those who exact vengeance on those who act against the democratic ideal. Even religion holds this hope, Nietzsche claims. He quotes a rather long passage in the original Latin from Tertullian, in which he describes the tortures that Christians can enjoy watching their unbelieving persecutors experiencing. That is, isn't hell a creation of the resentful hatred of the weak? Indeed, aren't all the Christian virtues a distortion of what is in fact weakness? Nietzsche says that patience is merely the inability to move up in line, of the weakness of having to wait. So too, turning the other cheek is in fact an attempt to make a virtue out of being a coward. Having to submit to those one hates is called obedience, even obedience to God. Not being able able to take revenge is called forgiveness. And, of course, the final triumph in which someone, fulfilling the resentful hatred of the weak, finally defeats and tortures the strong, that is called the coming of the kingdom and the triumph of justice. There are other things that could be noted in this first essay, too. For example, Nietzsche's criticism of the idea of agency. That is, people having a will. If atheism, specifically naturalism, is correct, then, Nietzsche hints, ethics in terms of good and evil committed by willing agents is simply nonsense. There are some who are strong because of a stroke of evolutionary luck, while most are weak, herd animals. We can no more condemn a strong person from acting in their noble values than we can condemn a bird of prey from acting like a bird of prey. It's just nature. We could talk further also about some of the misunderstandings that arise in this essay, such as Nietzsche's reference to the Blonde Beast. Was this Arianism? The answer is actually fairly obvious if you just read the text. It's a no, since he includes among the Blonde Beasts Romans, Arabs, and Japanese. Blonde Beast simply refers to lions, who are fairly good images of the strong in nature. Now finishing this essay, you might have a few questions. For example, if Nietzsche is right that our contemporary morality simply arose from the hatred that the weak felt for the strong, then how is it that we've developed a sense of conscience or guilt? Further, given that most religious people are, by definition, not naturalist atheists, does Nietzsche have a good naturalistic explanation for why we believe in God, and very often believe that morality comes from God? Now, Nietzsche offers explanations of these matters in the second essay. And we'll, we'll have to turn to that in the next podcast.
1: After that uh, great exposition by Travis, I want to try and give just a very brief summary um, that, that I think we you could walk away with and uh, bounce it off Travis and see if it if it's a good summary or see see what what would be wrong with thinking of it in this way. So for Nietzsche, many, many years ago in the ancient times, good was just kind of the people who had, who had the strength, the people who were were kind of we would consider them uh, genetically blessed, um, or maybe ancestrally blessed. Um and what they did was was good and they liked themselves. You know, it came from their their gut. They just it just tells them that they're good. Um, and the people who are bad. You know, it's not like they hate the bad people, it's and they almost feel sorry for them because they can't be good like they are. They don't have the honor that, that they do. And um according to Nietzsche, this is how it was for, for many years. And then uh when uh the the bad people um over time developed some cleverness and they used Jesus to kind of flip the moral scales to where all the 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 bad things became actually good. So you know, I, I he, Travis mentioned obedience is just not being able to overtake the person strong or uh, the person stronger than you who's telling you what to do, and patience is not being able to get fast get ahead in the line. Um, you know, we 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 so all these things are now all these signs of weakness of badness are are good, and the good, uh, in a way, becomes evil um, although there are certain elements of the good that the the priestly goodness uh, still kind of holds on to like that that ability to hold power, both sides seem to think are good but uh, the, the evil is this idea of, of almost like if you're stronger, if you can beat me up, you must be evil because you know my my weakness is is good is, is that a, a fair summary of Nietzsche?
0: Yeah, that's, that's, pre- I mean, uh, there are obviously a bunch of details mixed out, left out of there, but it's a summary. So, yeah, I mean, originally there was the good and the bad, and it didn't really have a moral flavor. Now, we might need to discuss what that means a little bit. It didn't really have that much of a moral flavor. It was just like, I don't want to be like that. Uh, it wasn't, I don't want to be like that because that's a horrible person. It's just, I don't, you know, I, you know, like, I don't want to be, a, I don't know, I don't want to be an air traffic controller. I'm not condemning them, I just don't want to be that um and the good just had a natural sense that they that they are the exuberant uh vigorous ones um and then eventually things got flipped around and we got the good and evil and the the good of the good and bad is the evil of the good and evil uh and their their evil contains an element of hatred and jealousy and resentment and that's where the moral flavor of con- moral, con- uh, the moral flavor of condemnation, and so forth arose, according to Nietzsche. So, yeah, and it came in large part because of the cleverness of the of the weak.
1: So, so, for, so for Nietzsche, the good and bad not having a moral flavor, it, it, it's it's almost like for Nietzsche, for Nietzsche's assessment of morality or interpretation or genealogy of morality, what we think of as moral now requires a, uh, uh someone to hate. You have to have conflict, uh, some sort of conflict in order for there to be morality, according to the way that Nietzsche's evaluating the priestly morality. Would that be?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Morality is a, is arose out of a reaction. And so it was a reaction against, uh, based on hatred. So his view is that, um, is that there was uh that that the weak don't don't act this is why he doesn't believe that um that uh morality could have or the original valuation could have come from the weak because uh the weak don't the weak don't produce they don't create generally speaking they normally just react and so their valuation is basically a reaction to something it's based on a hatred of and so uh, it's always while the good can run around and enjoy the exuberance of their life without reference to anything that they're against morality can only exist as a, as a, as a not that an anti that an anti the other, you might say, we, we, we hate the other. Um, And so Nietzsche compares it. He gives a story of, of birds of prey and baby lambs or whatever. And he says, you know, nobody can, you know, baby lambs you wouldn't you wouldn't hold it against the the lambs to hate the birds of prey and for them to say to one another whoever is least like a bird of prey is good but you see how that's a definition based on it's it's grounded in the thing that I hate so I start with hating and say stop don't be like the thing I hate that's the the whole definition of morality is to not be like the thing that we hate uh, whereas the birds of prey they don't hate the baby lambs in fact they think there's nothing more delicious than a nice baby <laughs> love. Uh, but, uh But it's – it's and it's not based on that. It's based simply on what they love. It's based on – it's grounded in, in a love of the self or a love of one's own, own life. And so morality has – is fundamentally an anti and against uh, a not something. Does that make sense?
1: So let, let, let me – ask a clarifying question that's kind of going to point us ahead a little bit uh, before we come back and parse out a few more things is nietzsche calling us back to the morality of good and bad is that is that going to be his ultimate conclusion that we just need to get back to that good and bad uh
0: yes and no uh the yes uh so it's it's sort of complicated it's it's not really that complicated i mean i can say it very simply nietzsche doesn't think most people can do this cuz because he believes that the weak and the strong is not a matter of uh, is not a matter of choosing to be weak and strong or whatever He's, he thinks there's just people that are born weak and people who are born strong uh, he in fact he he has a, a part in the first essay where he criticizes the idea of agency he believes agency that we have a will that can, that is free to act. In fact, a will that is distinct from the deed itself uh, is a creation for the purpose of being able to condemn people for their actions. So he doesn't believe agency is something you believe because you believe because you, you actually recognize agency. He believes agency exists, uh, or or is brought up so that we are able to hate better. If that makes sense. I can't hate you if you can't help it. I can just be like, that's not, that's, it's like, you don't hate an avalanche and you don't hate gravity. You know, even if you're falling to your death, you don't necessarily hate gravity. You're just, uh, it's disappointing that this is how this turned out, <laughs> you know, but you can hate a person because you hate, uh, and we, we use hate that language of hate. Like a, we hate cancer and we hate whatever, but cancer isn't, it's not like cancer decided to come after you. It just Does right? The avalanche just happened to happen, you know? Um, and so, but we, we, to, to condemn someone as evil, you have to, you have to, at least I believe so, uh, I need to believe so. You have to affirm that they have some sort of agency, some, some ability to do otherwise. And so, um, I kind of forget what the original question was. So, uh, yeah, what was the original question?
1: If is if, if calling us back to the oh, good yeah, and bad are right. going further.
0: That's right. So, so he he is wanting. He believes that the strong are being that is per, that perhaps the strong are being limited and constrained by the good and evil valuation, the, the the slave morality or the weak the weak morality. But he doesn't think that most people are capable of of living within the strong morality. So he's not a motivational speaker who's going to get up and teach you how to be strong. He's just like, you know, and if you read a lot of his writings, he's always writing to those who can understand him. He says that all the time, right? This isn't for everyone. Not everyone can understand me. This is for, you uh, you know, we free spirits and all this other kind of stuff. And so he sort of is, but in many ways... He's, he's not really trying to preach that we should be different. It's almost like he's just trying to expose. That way, you might do something like this. It'd be like when you find someone who's on their moral high horse and you discover a clear instance of hypocrisy, it's sort of nice to just bring that up. And when you do it, you maybe weaken the power over people's minds of that belief. And it's I think in many ways, that's what Nietzsche is doing. He's saying, yeah, this isn't this isn't what you think it is. For example, and uh, you know, when I teach when I teach ethics uh, at the university, a lot of times I like to bring up the idea that you know, uh, given the the standard account that science has told us about our origins, you are at the end of a long line of the best murderers, killers, consumers, and violators in the entire animal kingdom. So congratulations for being all about <laughs> peace and mercy and compassion. Right. And you're so much better than everyone else. But if, if, if people, if you, if, you know, wherever we came from had been like you, you wouldn't exist because they would have just been killed. And that's kind of what Nietzsche, that's sort of what Nietzsche's talking about a little bit. But the idea there is I'm not trying to teach, I'm not trying to get my students to become violent. That's not my goal. I'm trying to get them to be a little bit chagrined at their situation and to recognize that we're not, as good as we tend to think we are. And there might be there might be some bad motives at the heart of our morality. And I think people are getting that sense nowadays in our society that there's a lot of moral language being thrown around. I mean, this has been aimed at Christians for the longest time, right? You can watch something like Footloose and get that uh, if you want to go back in time a little bit or go back even further, obviously. But there, when you start seeing someone prancing about in righteousness and condemning people, Sometimes you just want to say, you know what? You know, maybe everything back there isn't how it's supposed to be and you might have some bad motives. And I think that's kind of what Nietzsche is 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 sort of doing, but he's doing it in a way that's far more devastating than the way we normally do it, right? We we want to find out that that pastor who's been preaching about I don't know, been preaching against some particular sin is himself struggling with that sin. You know, that's like, oh, good, we got him. You know, it's sort of a delicious or terrible kind of experience. But is basically saying, yeah, all your morality is that way. So it's all monstrous.
1: So would it be fair to say that the caricature of Nietzsche, where he's just saying, you know, be the be the Ubermensch, like you know, be in it for yourself. Be, you know, don't care about other people. Um, you know, use other people to your own me, you know, that that sort of caricature of Nietzsche. That's not necessarily what Nietzsche's doing, that Nietzsche's more about the critique than about actually giving us anything to replace what he's critiquing?
0: Well, yes and no. So the critique is a, is a is a big element. So I'm gonna do a lot of yes and no's the, the critique is a is a big element, but there is an element where he wants to encourage those people to be who have the capacity to become ubermensch ubermenschen to become that, I think. And he, he he wants to sort of chart a path. But really in many ways what Nietzsche's trying to do is to become one himself. So in many ways, this is a very autobiographical sort of experience for him. This isn't merely philosophy. He, he wasn't a person who just came up with a great system and wrote it down and tried to get famous. He was someone who was wrestling with life itself. And so he's not like any modern philosophers. Uh, he's not there to get published in some sort of niche, I would say niche but then you might confuse him saying his name, but anyway, uh, but he's not, he's not doing, he's not doing that sort of thing where he's going to be super smart and just show everybody how smart he is. He's trying to wrestle with life itself. And that's maybe because his life was actually very, very hard and, and, and he suffered a lot. And so there's an element where he's trying to become, in some ways, his whole philosophy is an attempt to overcome the moral valuation of good, of good and evil. At the same time, and this is a point I didn't make, I didn't make in the, in the description, maybe as clearly as I should have the original, the original strong, what we might call the Ubermensch in the past, we're not, we can't be like that anymore. Not really. In fact, overcoming has become complicated, like, because we've in, we've, we've taken in our, uh, kind of psychological genetics the cleverness and the complexity and the depth of the week. We cannot go back to just being barbarians. We are, the kind of overcoming that Nietzsche is focusing on is not selfish, violent, you know, pillaging and looting and raping. In fact, the people that he believed were the most overcoming type of people were people like Goethe, right? Who, who was an artist, so to speak, right? A poet. And so, uh, this isn't, he believed art. He, in fact, he saw music as sort of the high point of this overcoming. But part of self, a major part of of self overcoming. That's what he really focused on: self overcoming, overcoming the things that are that are binding you. But this is really just for the strong, because most people, most people can't. He would almost say, "Those who have ears to hear, let them hear," because <laughs> most of you don't have them. And so there is an element of that kind of motivation, but a lot of it is, I think, him trying to work through it himself. If that makes sense.
1: So, one one word that didn't come up in your summary, and if I remember correctly from my reading, doesn't come up in, in much in the first essay, at least, is you know you, you well. You talked about you know how he sees Jesus being used as the the ability you know the way that that things are switched, um, you know, and this was driven by cleverness and hate, yet. Jesus was a, at least from Nietzsche's perspective, you know, he would say at least that Jesus was a teacher who came in the name of love, or at least used, used the, the ideas of love to drive his teaching. Um, how, how does that work to blame or to point to someone proclaiming love as a tool of hate and cleverness?
0: So how does Jesus who preached this point to someone
1: so so you 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 talked about how the the priestly the the weak were you know using Jesus as the the the, the flip the switch from the the uh noble morality to the priestly morality um mm-hmm. and if priestly morality is motivated by hate and cleverness um how is using Jesus who proclaimed a message of love, which seems to be the opposite of their purposes, the source for uh, their success, I guess.
0: Yeah, this is, so there's, Nietzsche has a complicated, seems to have a fairly complicated view of Jesus. He has a very straightforward view of Paul. He doesn't like him at all. Um. His view of Jesus, I mean, he has a quote where he says, in truth, there was only one Christian and he died on a cross. So his suggestion is that the morality that we've inherited isn't really Jesus's morality. Uh, At least that's what it seems like. I think that's what he's suggesting by that. Uh, So it could be that Jesus was, in fact, truly loving.
1: But that's not how he's used. So, so... According to some Christians, it's akin to Constantine's seizing of the cross and to help him overcome the, uh, you know, the, to win the battle. Uh, and so he became Christian, but, you know, that, not, without really proclaiming the principles of Christ. Is, is, that, is that what you're saying? Nietzsche's yeah. claiming that happened with Jesus
0: now, now, my my friend Peter Lightheart might have that, that, words for you there. That's why I said but, some Christians. But, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's it's it's you could argue it sort of that way. And when Nietzsche talks about you know, and it's, he sounds very anti-Semitic here, uh, but when he talks about the Jews who were a nation of priests and so on and so forth using Jesus, I don't think he means that like a group of people got together and said, "Hey, let's," you know. But uh, I'm not exactly sure precisely what Nietzsche is trying to say, except that, he, that Jesus has been useful, and Constantine is the image, is really the image of when, uh, when Jerusalem finally defeat, defeated Rome uh, by having them, you know, drink, you know, take in Jesus. And Nietzsche had the same view as a lot of people did then that Christianity is what brought the Roman Empire down. It made it, well, weak, right? It used to be strong. Now it became weak. And so, uh, yeah. Now, the appealing to Jesus so that I can hate people better, the fact that people have done that in the past, the, the fact that Nietzsche could think people did that is not surprising. No. <laughs> because we see it all the time, right? Yeah. I mean... I'm pretty confident I've done that before. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I anyway. So, I mean, that, that's religion. We consistently, we humans consistently use morality as a weapon against people. We don't, we rarely use it to make ourselves, to try to improve ourselves. Our primary use of morality is to attack other people. Nietzsche's got a point. You know, in fact, arguably Nietzsche's lining up, I think, perhaps with like Bonhoeffer's description of uh, the of Genesis 3. You know, why do we have the knowledge of good and evil? Does that, oh, well, the knowledge of good and evil is good. We would want that because it would help us become better people. We don't use it to become better people. We use it to destroy the person next to us. And you see that with Adam and Eve, right? First thing Adam does is he blames Eve. First thing Eve does is blame the serpent. And so we use it to, to cast blame. we use it to throw responsibility off of ourselves, which sounds like a what something a weak person would do and we use it we use it primarily to be against other people. we, we define ourselves by what we're not and the primary way we can define ourselves by what we're not is through the use of morality. We're not that and if you're not that, we're the good. you're, you're the good with me. Which is kind of gross. Yeah, he doesn't say it's
1: evil. He says it smells bad. Now, this something that is is uh, absent in all this discussion um, that I think plays a big role in in mu- in good Christian ethics, good Christian morality is discussions of, about. Things like the imago Day about human dignity, um, you know, I I think some people who would be very drawn to Nietzsche's critique of Christianity or or modern contemporary morality would look back at the ancient example and say, yeah, but the nobles, the I mean the the way they viewed. The, the bad was, was dehumanizing. It did not recognize any kind of, of uh, dignity um, or value within those people. It it was just felt bad for them, you know, And, and while being grateful that they're not them as well. Um, and so, you know, as, as, as Christians, I, you know, we, 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 uh, we obviously don't want to go back to the good and bad, but I think we also have to be careful that we don't, fall into Nietzsche's, I don't want to say Nietzsche's trap, but Nietzsche's critique that, you know, what, what is our purpose and morality is our purpose and morality to make ourselves feel better because we're not them or, you know, it's our, as is our, our morality to make us, to elevate us over other people, or is it to help us become better people ourselves? Um, people who, who are um, more like Christ who are drawn to the ultimate good. Um, you know, I, th- this is something we're going to continue to revisit as we talk about Nietzsche because um, you know, his critiques, you know, as as someone who's not a Nietzsche scholar, who's not read extensively on Nietzsche, I find myself drawn to his critiques while repulsed by his kind of evaluative lens itself. Like the way he sees the world, I find repulsive But his critiques have a point to them that um, I think we would be well off to listen to. Um, Even if they don't actually apply to us directly, there's something about the way that we are perceived and allowing ourselves to be perceived, uh, projecting ourselves that allow that perception that um, makes Nietzsche's critique uh, bite and sting. Uh, It's not just, oh, this doesn't apply to me. There's something to it.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I want to be brief here, but he does—he he critiques. His critique isn't just against Christians, right? And his, his critique is very much against utilitarians and atheists. Uh, in many ways, he's saying you guys aren't really paying attention to what you to what you've done and where you are. Uh, uh, but th- this is this is really good because it's it's hard to just toss him out. If you really under if you really understand what he's doing and what he's saying, you're like. Oh, well he's got a point but he leaves the door open when he said there's only one christian and he died on a cross what he's saying is i mean he's almost inadvertently saying there might be something here but it's unique and no one else is doing that or which is maybe more of a condemnation for us
1: yeah or you know and and as a as a pastor's kid who lost his dad i mean that, that i can see where uh that would his his experience could definitely look around and say, I sure didn't feel this love and stuff when my dad died. And, and in my life after my dad died, um, mm-hmm. which is very sad. And I hope um, we would do our best that if there are little niches out where in, you know, in, in our circles that we're, uh, we're showing them love. We're, 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 we're not creating more confirmation of this really, uh, really pointed critique. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, we're, we're probably about the hour or a little past the hour mark. So we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we're going to dive into this. Travis is going to dive into the second essay next time as he pointed to near the end of his talk. Um, we're going to get into, to some more great discussion. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. Look forward to, uh, you guys joining again next week uh, thanks for listening this is Joel
0: this is Travis have a great day